Glory to Jesus Christ. Welcome to the 24th episode, I believe, or is it the 25th? Uh Uh-oh. Well, welcome to a new episode of Encountering the Trinity. I am your host, Steve Nichols, and joining me today, once again, is Father Phil. Father Phil, how are you on this beautiful morning? Good morning, Steve. Uh, Happy to be here and looking forward to our podcast. Awesome. Well, could you start us out with a, a prayer? By all means. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, it is your light in which we see light, the light of faith. You illumine our hearts, and so our minds are able also to focus on creation and each other as you intended us to see the beauty and the beauteous things that you have created. All that is made is for our good, so that we can be your images and likenesses in this world being ourselves, instances and instantiations of your divine glory. All of this is given to us through your Son, who became incarnate for our sake, and poured himself out on the cross that we might be assimilated into him. Through the power of his Holy Spirit, may we be imbued with your divine majesty. May our sins be not only forgiven, but purified and stripped from the face of your image that you have installed in us so that we may radiate your love and kindness to the world. We ask this through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Father Phil, last week we left off with a very interesting statement that you made right towards the end of the the podcast, at least that I think some of our listeners will have found interesting. I know I sure did. And you had said something to the effect that the, the, the reason that Christ was crucified is because the world could not accept a God who was not angry. Um, it, and I, I find that very, Interesting because um, in the tradition I was raised in and, and just, I mean, most Christianity West and even some East, um, I think a lot of us might find that statement almost borderline heretical depending on um, the, the, the individual person and, and their um, experience of what they believe Christianity is all about. Um, but however, I know it's not a heretical statement. I was wondering if you could kind of um, talk a little bit about that this morning. I can. I wonder if it would be helpful, Steve, for you to give us uh, a little, uh, you know, you and I have been talking about this topic uh, in preparation for the podcast a little bit, and I always do think that your experience as a former evangelical, and even as a Catholic, still in the process of um, what I probably impiously call detoxing (laughs) from... From a certain, uh, you know, view of of uh, Christianity that you inherited in your evangelical tradition, as well as uh, I think we also said last time that, you know, even our Roman Catholic uh, tradition, especially in the West and especially um, a- in the late Middle Ages, and as a kind of um, what both the previous pontiffs have called a um, corruption, you know, of 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 high scholasticism ended up into kind of a moralistic um, uh, theology, theology that was reduced to morals for the most part. 
and a um, morality that had been severed from the great vision of deification that was so prevalent in the early church and even uh, obtained in the church, east and west, uh, really even through through the high Middle Ages, St. Thomas Aquinas, but after that, um, tended to, to, um, to ossify, to harden, to uh, constrict itself into a narrow, both a narrow moral theology, as well as a, um, a narrow um, a dogmatic theology. And at the heart and center of that was um, a certain view of the incarnation uh, uh, and the atonement, the underlying premise of which is that the Father, for, for reasons of divine justice, required the sacrifice, the, the bloody sacrifice of his Son, in order to atone, as it were, for the injustice that was done uh, to an infinite God by a finite creature back in the Garden of Eden. And that, uh, you know, we have simply asserted, without going into much of the historical evidence for it, that's a, a, a misrepresentation uh, both of the Genesis story as well as uh, it's it's really not consonant with a lot of Catholic exegetical history, and it's certainly not compatible with anything that was um, spoken about in terms of the divine economy uh, in the uh, certainly in the in the patristic period, but even uh, throughout the high Middle Ages, probably until the time of of Anselm and later, um, it did a certain um, vengeful theory of atonement that was focused primarily on the act of forgiveness and man's sins usurp the lion's share of Catholic theology. But sadly, um, most of our Christianity that we have inherited, uh, you know, certainly since the 14th, 15th century, has been driven consciously or unconsciously by a theory of divine justice and recompense um, that has really been a theological straitjacket and continues to bedevil all of Christian theology in the West for the most part, um, Protestant and Catholic, in its different versions. Um, and, you know, one of the persons who is beginning to, well, and the, and the last two popes, certainly John Paul II and Benedict XVI and now Pope Francis, they are, they are all acutely aware of the cloud under which um, that paradigm for doing theology, I think as I said parenthetically last time in the podcast, there is a certain truth to, 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 to um, even the, the late Middle Ages theories of atonement, but that's getting down into the theological weeds in a way that we don't want to get there today. What you're finding with Pope Benedict and Pope John Paul II and Pope Francis and all of those who wanted a return to the sources, um, which culminated in the Vatican II Council, was that they wanted to open up our vision. They wanted to puncture some holes in the constricting theological model driven largely by this caricature of the atonement that I just laid out very briefly. But all of our listeners will be familiar with the basic scenario that I spelled out a minute ago. And in one way or another, theology has become kind of intellectual gymnastics to try to reconcile God's so-called mercy with his so-called <laughs> justice. And there's a whole exegetical tra tradition that goes along with that as well, as you know. And it's alive and well in the Christian West, but, it, but it's, 
it's actually deep down it's antithetical to the light of the resurrection it's antithetical to the light from the east it's antithetical to the purpose of the incarnation it's antithetical to anything that is deeply mystically contemplatively and traditionally christian uh and you know steve when you ask me to speak about this topic we've done this i think in some previous podcasts and and it is so bewildering when a person first hears what you and I are beginning to tell them today, in addition to all the other previous podcasts on, on deification, which is a light from the East that our Western lit- listeners, for the most part, will have never heard of, much less been able to get their minds and hearts around. What I'm saying here is uh, the task ahead of us, theologically, spiritually, um, uh, catechetically, is much more formidable than turning around the Titanic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, people who are people who are are leaders in in this effort, uh, Rene Girard and his devotees, um, uh, Raymond, the Jesuit Raymond Schwager, S C H W A G E R. Those who have been inveighing for decades now uh, against the hegemony or the the tyranny of uh, divine justice pictured in mythological terms and overlaid onto the Christian gospel, removing that mythological varnish from our theological tradition is a task that has barely begun, even though it's crucially necessary. Um, When John Paul II said it was necessary for the church to breathe with both lungs and that the western lung of the Catholic Church was largely asphyxiated, he meant primarily by this stranglehold of um, an antinomy, a, a false dichotomy between God's justice and God's mercy. And it's really sad to me to see how even fairly astute uh, theologians and uh, um, modern-day catechists uh, do mental gyrations to try to reconcile these things that, in the abstract, cannot be reconciled. Um, so uh, an entirely different model has to be uh, offered. And what you're seeing um, in Pope Francis, I believe, is a person who comes from a different model. He comes from a model where the only name for God is mercy, that whatever God's justice is, it is driven by God's mercy. Um, If there is a punishment in God or a suffering in God, it's a function of his goodness, much like a person who has been eating a poor diet and then is finally fed rich and sumptuous foods that are healthy, finds himself getting sick because his system is not acclimated to the goodness of the giver. And I won't, I could amplify those images uh, ad, ad nauseum or ad, in, ad infinitum here, um, but any suffering having to do with God, any suffering related to the passion on the cross is quite ancillary, quite uh, subsidiary, quite a, a byproduct of the encounter of human sinfulness, human violence, human pettiness, the human propensity to view the other as a rival, Um, all the suffering, all the pain, all the so-called divine wrath that we read about, even in the scriptures, 
must be viewed as a function of the collision of human sinfulness with divine light, mercy, and love, because God is love. (coughs) In him there is no darkness. So there is nothing other than mercy in God. And the experience of divine justice is actually an entirely human um, phenomenon resulting from the encounter of human sin with divine sinlessness, and it's sin that actually concocts. It's the sinful intellect unillumined by the light of the East, the light of the resurrection, the light of Christ. It's the sinful human intellect that propounds theories about the necessity of divine justice because the human mind thinks in categories of getting even, and getting back at you-ism, and human intellect itself in its fallen condition is driven by resentment, rivalry, and the need for retribution. And that that need in the human person is then projected upon God. So that human need to get even, <clears throat> to, to demand retribution for uh, wrongs done, that human need, that human calculus, that human systematic way of thinking, that human needing to even out the columns, the accountant in the human person to reconcile credits with debits, that is what gets projected upon God and upon the gospel. And so when you encounter phrases from Jesus like, um, uh, my father's sun shines on the just and the unjust alike. How many times must I forgive them? Seven? No, 77 times seven. The infinite demands of the gospel for turning the other cheek, for nonviolent uh, intercession for those who are literally putting you to death. These phrases of Jesus, which is the heart and soul of the gospel, his words are simply external reflections of his person which means his person is infinitely unjudgmental, has no justice in it other than the justice of his mercy. and But the human mind cannot comprehend that, and therefore, for centuries, Catholics and Protestants alike have relegated the words of Jesus to a utopian ideal that no nation-state or no person or no family or no community or no country <laughs> can practically live by, and so therefore we have Jesus, we check our religion at the door, and Christ cannot come into the public square, and the ethic of nonviolence is not a, uh, an acceptable political strategy, and Catholics are okay to kill as long as they do it in the name of a just war, and all the rest of it. And, and you know, so you have things like the death penalty is a good thing, and Catholics can believe in it, and so when a pope like John Paul II comes out and says, no death penalty because it's vengeance, and vengeance is mine, says the Lord, and in the Lord there is no vengeance. Um, (laughs) uh, Catholics, they they do it, they're incredulous. So what I'm saying is the entire Catholic world, well, for, for the most part, the entire Catholic world, as well as the entire Protestant world, is incredulous at the gospel. What I'm saying to our podcast listeners is the gospel has not even begun to be heard yet, except by people like Mother Teresa, um, St. Vincent de Paul, um, the Little Flower, um, uh, Pope Francis. You know, Pope Francis says, you know, the blood of Christ is the the, uh, super glue of God trying to put Humpty Dumpty back together again, you know? And 
Francis himself is being is being uh, scapegoated for saying we should have no scapegoats. The whole gospel, <laughs> the whole gospel, yeah. Jesus became a scapegoat so that he would deliver us from the need to scapegoat others. But the human mind, its default position is to blame and to shame, the true BS in the world, blame and shame. And we do it as automatically as we breathe. And so justice as we understand it, which is getting evenism, retaliation, retribution, making things right, and then we spin mythologies to justify our need to retaliate, and we call it Christian theology. It is a bunch of BS, a bunch of blame blame and shame that has no place in the Christian world. But Christians don't believe that, and I will be crucified for saying that the cross delivers us from the need to crucify others. But uh, the people, Catholics, Christians, fallen human intellects, cannot relinquish the idea of getting back at somebody. And so we assume God has that same need since we're made in the image and likeness of God. But what is actually happening here for at least 800 years in the church, we have made God in the image and likeness of the human need to retaliate. So that gives a little context, (laughs) I believe, for what we want to say. Yeah, yeah. well, it's interesting because you... you, um keep going back to the word justice and our propensity, our, our um, it, it, I mean, it really, it's subconscious for us. We just instantly in, in the West, and I, I really can't speak for the East because I wasn't raised uh, there, but um, we just instantly assume that you mean getting yours, you know, get, getting back at someone, you know, someone stole something. So now, you know, maybe you'll get the stuff back. Maybe you won't, but ha, that guy's going to pay for it or, um, you know, any other type of situation like that where something has been, you know, you've been wronged somehow. Um, we, we think that there needs to be some type of retaliation, um, that will, will punish the other person and, and somehow enough punishment, enough retribution will somehow then satisfy, um, the score. Believe in the score. Exactly. And what's interesting is ultimately there's another type of justice, um, the the restorative type of justice, the the idea that justice is all about making things right, Mm -hmm. but not in the sense of me getting mine, but in the sense of all being well, everything being healed, everything being brought back to the way it should be, or maybe it never was the way it should be. But now again, like the words of Christ, behold, I make all things new. That's, that's, that's really where we should get our definition of justice is from of what God's justice is, is exactly what Jesus says at the end of scripture. When he says, behold, I make all things new, everything, the, the whole creation, every human person, because I'm Jesus Christ, because I am the word of God, the second person of the Trinity, I am the one who restores. I am that that is what I am all about and I can do it. It is it's my will. <laughs> it's my will to recreate everything and everyone and restore things in a fashion that are even greater than they were before the fall. Um because he's God. <laughs> That's what he's all about and um and yeah, that paradigm shift which I've had to undergo is um, wow, <laughs> it's hard. And it, because there, there, there still is always that, 
um, inclination when even in just the slightest way that you could be wrong. Let's say um, you're in a little theological discussion with uh, a friend or just an acquaintance and that person says something that you don't agree with. It's almost instant that the, the wanting to retaliate with even something as small as, well, that's what you believe, but I believe this and this and that and kind of, <clears throat> you know, you're, you're already there trying to, you know, practicing sacred violence. It, it, sure, it's in a small, small way, but if you really look at it, you're trying to attack the person and say, I know the better way, and ha, I gotcha. And see, see now you, you, you realize you're wrong, I'm right, so you need to come to my side. And, and it, just even in those small ways, instead of... Um, it, it, the the thing that Jesus says to us, and is is so hard, you know, to turn the other cheek and, and bless those who curse you and everything else, is, in other words, it's it's hard for us to get up on the cross <clears throat> and to allow ourselves to be scapegoated and to and to and to accept that and to accept it in love and to just simply say. I'm going to let them <clears throat> treat me this way and do this and not respond with violence because I know eventually, and I've experienced this in my own life, that if you simply turn the other cheek, you turn it enough times, eventually the person gets tired of, of striking that side of your face. Um, they, 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 it, that, that type of response of nonviolence and the, the, the response of love instead um, it has such a powerful way of working on someone. It's like it's like us when we look at the cross. You look at the cross enough eventually, and you know, hopefully, you realize, oh wow, God really does love me. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, I, I think it's um, again though getting back to our understanding of God's justice. Um, the 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 understanding that most of us have of justice in the West and even perhaps in the East, I, I would assume it's the same. I, th- I think it's probably the same for all of mankind that we all like to think justice is, is us getting ours. Restoring the honor is what it would probably be considered in the East. I know that's very um, big and popular in Eastern cultures is that um, you, you've offended the honor of my family or my daughter, so you've, therefore you've offended my, my honor and my honor now needs to be restored. And that's just a false idol. Um, and that, that is that is Christianity for most people. Exactly, exactly. And it is, I think, the hardest thing for us is to look at the cross and then to, 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 to say, oh, wow, so I need to do that too. That needs to be my response to all of my persecutors, to all of those that would not have mercy on me, that would try to crucify me, is to allow them to do it. And out of love, not out of, well, you know, these, these lower, less than me, worthless scumbags, I guess I'll do this. It's, it's no, I, realizing that somehow, because of the cross, this is what, the cross is what's transformed the world, transfigured the cosmos, and by me participating in that, by laying down my life and, 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 and becoming another Christ, um, is what transforms other people's lives because it, that, it's then me giving them the love of Christ instead of responding out of um, 
you know, some, some need for my particular honor or, or, or justice in the, in the fallen sense of the word, uh, to be, uh, fulfilled. And that, that is just incredibly difficult, um, to, to, uh, to even begin to see is right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, um, you know, the, the, uh, the default position to, to, to get even, um, you know, I, the words, the word justice has become so toxic in our theological and, uh, uh civic uh, vocabulary it, it it bears no resemblance to what the israelites understood by justice um you know f- from a christian perspective they were <clears throat> here's a good exegetical per- example perhaps of what we're saying uh and how easily misunderstood uh the gospel is and can be from this perspective um you know, a lot of Christians will say, well, God meant us to get back at each other because he said an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And, you know, what most people who think that way don't realize is that um, that development within Israel, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, was a great improvement upon the cultures that surrounded them where it was a thousand eyes for an eye and a thousand tooth teeth for a tooth um and so are you still there steve yeah yeah and and uh so it was a you can see in the israelite scriptures all through their ethical teachings they've not totally been purified of the archaic religious need to to restore order by eliminating the enemy but they're moving in that direction. Gerard calls the Old Testament uh, a text in travail. They're, they're, it's like giving birth to the gospel, but it's not quite there yet. Um, you know, Gerard makes the point about um, the Ten Commandments, and the key commandment in the Ten for him is, thou shall not covet, because it's the, it's the movement in the human heart that... Uh, that to covet that uh, immediately uh, constellates the other as an enemy, and um, and then people are basically what the what the Ten Commandments are saying is do not be rivals for the same object so that you are not led to resentment against your neighbor because all resentment leads to re- the desire for revenge and ultimately for retaliation in one form or another. I found it very illuminating this week in the news where Pope Francis said uh, gossip and rumor is uh, the equivalent of murder. Mm -hmm. And Jesus says the same thing in a way that people do not take literally, but he meant literally. Uh, You know, uh, uh, everyone who is angry with his brother is fit for the fires of hell. And that does not imply his father would send them there. It simply implies they are fit for the fires of hell. Translated, they're already living in hell. Exactly. They're living in the hell of the fire of their own need for retaliation. (laughs) And eternity is a continuation of the way in which the tree has fallen in opposition to the other. So when I encounter the truly other as God, I view him also as an enemy. And hell is projecting upon God 
a uh, a vengeful vis- visage and 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 staying away from him forever because I think he's out to get me because I have lived in that out to get me mentality my whole life. So I'm wandering a little bit here, but the gospel then um, we see the movement from vengeance to forgiveness throughout the. Hebrew scriptures, especially in the servant songs of the suffering servant who turns his cheek rather than retaliate, and then that becomes incarnate in the person of Jesus. Um, And so we see the fullness of God's revelation in the New Testament, which is altogether without violence, without rage, without resentment, and without the need to get even. And and Steve, I believe that the that the word justice, you know, I, that you know, even restorative justice. I think you know, justice and the cross for most people is so severely imbued at this point in our theological tradition in the West with the notion of divine vengeance and um, and and a kind of get evenism that's projected upon the trinity that um, it's it's more advisable to eliminate the word justice from our <laughs> vocabulary and to speak about rest, restorative love mm-hmm. um, and it's very hard to see the cross without focusing on the physical suffering and the bloodletting that's going on because we are we are a people who has a thirst for blood at the center of our soul, and we baptize it with divine justice, and um, it has nothing to do with God. Um, and that, that, that is so deeply ingrained in us, both by our theological education, but more profoundly by the fact that we are, are sinful, uh, retaliatory creatures by virtue of our, of our uh, sinfulness. And... Um, so we have to be delivered from that, and there's no way of thinking ourselves out of this. Um, there's no way to think ourselves out of it. It can only be, as you say, placing ourselves uh, in the light of Christ, uh, you know, as John Paul used to say so often, beholding the face of Christ. I'm sitting uh, in my uh, den right now looking at that famous uh, Sinai Pantocrator of Jesus where his two eyes, you know, one focuses directly on you and one focuses off into the distance for the sinner that he's not been able to heal yet with his disarming love, you know. You're right, Steve, it's as if Jesus on the cross is saying, make me the pinata of your need to get back at each other so that you will exhaust yourself on me and then you won't find that need to retaliate against each other. <laughs> You know what I mean? He really has made himself the divine punching bag uh, so that we will, just like a kid, Steve, the image I always get is that Jesus is the good mother and humanity is the crying and kicking kid. And instead of letting the kicks and screams, instead of letting the two brothers pound each other to a pulp, the mother takes the first one and lets the kid smash her in the face and kick her in the stomach until he cries himself to sleep, you know, and then, <laughs> and, then, and then he picks up the other one, you know, he picks up the wounded to heal them. You know, it's a scandal to our, to our conservative Catholic brothers and sisters that Pope Benedict is being so gay friendly with his remarks because they need the gays to be consigned to the lower levels of hell in order for them to feel like they're going to heaven. Yeah, and, uh, yeah and that, 
that's very very sad you know and and uh and people who cannot make the distinction and conservatives can never make this distinction nor can liberals only genuine catholics can make the distinction between um the the teaching of the church and the practice of the people you know it is a cliche to love the sinner and hate the love the sinner and hate the saint hate the sin um but but all or nothing types uh, cannot do that. They cannot distinguish. Um, they must be. A, they they have to wag the finger in order to feel like they've got to point the finger in order to feel good about themselves. But as my mother always told me, remember three are pointing right back at you. You know exactly. And yeah. without being too psychological about it, you know there is a maxim, and certainly in the recovery area of people who have known their own uh, inability to break free from addiction, and have been able to break free free by the mercy of God by owning their addiction. And one of the things they say is, you know, if you spot it in others, you've got it in yourself. You know. Yeah, I think there's that saying that many times we hate most what we fear in our, or we we hate most in others what we fear most in ourselves. And what did Jesus say? Take the speck out of your own eye. Take the beam out of your own eye and, and before you try to take the speck out of your brother's. And, and what Jesus is saying essentially is there, you'll never get to the speck in your brother's. Because, exactly, because you've got a log in your own exactly. eye. <laughs> See, we need, we need a whole new exegetical paradigm. We need a whole new spiritual and theological paradigm, and ultimately we need a deep-down conversion, we have to have an encounter. Until a person has an encounter with he who is nothing other than mercy, they will not be able to be merciful. And, and sadly, most people's theological education, ironically and paradoxically and tragically, most people's spiritual and theological formation is the very thing that prevents them from encountering God's mercy. It's really ultimately, and isn't this a paradox, and isn't this what St. Paul says? It's when I'm weak that I am strong. It was St. Paul's sinfulness that enabled him to encounter the divine mercy of the risen Christ. And, and so often we see the great, it takes, it's the greatest sinners who make the saints because in their despair they encounter the, the infinite mercy of God. Without justice, God's mercy is his justice. That's what's they're synonymous, yeah. They're synonymous. There are not two quantities here. There is only mercy, and justice is a function of the collision of human sinfulness with divine mercy. So it feels like God is hurting me, just like it feels like the sun is hurting me when I walk out into the light after having been in the dark all day. But it's not the sun. If I project intentionality upon the sun for brutalizing me because I'm <laughs> in the dark, I'm, I'm, I'm anthropomorphizing something that is quite indifferent to human darkness. So um, all those are images and metaphors. But, but doing this, Steve, there's no way we're going to do it for people intellectually, though I do believe you know, reading people like Rene Girard and Father Schwager and others uh, would be would be an intellectual help. Gerard himself, a deeply devout Catholic whose reconversion came when he discovered the nonviolent genius and uniqueness of the Christian and Hebrew scriptures. Um, uh, he, you know, I believe he, he himself has said 
that it's only a conversion that will allow you to even begin to grasp what the Gospels are all about, even though it's right there on the face of them, but, but people are still incredulous when they hear Jesus say, love your enemies, forgive those who hate you, pray for those who persecute you, Father, forgive them, they know not what they're doing. Yeah. We just simply cannot be- bring ourselves to believe it because we think there must be an element of get-evenism in God, and there's not. Yeah, I, I, uh, I think um, a really good little piece of scripture, I know I shared it with you yesterday when we were talking is um, from Isaiah, book of Isaiah. And what's really fascinating to me, Father Phil, is how throughout the history of um, Israel and even the history of the church, um, there's been this constant uh, battle between um, what you almost might call the the prophets and um, the the, um, religious elite of the time and um, <clears throat> we, we, we definitely see this in the history of Israel, and I, I think even in the history of the church. Um, and, and the prophets all along are pointing to this merciful and um, loving God and um, constantly having to correct Israel and their idolatry and sin mm-hmm. um, that they just keep falling back into because they keep thinking that, well, God, God will justify this war or me, you know, um, you know, committing genocide over here because he told me to do it. Right. And I mean, you see that all throughout the history of the old Testament. I mean, there's, there's obviously several accounts of genocide on the part of Israel and they just say, Oh, well, God told us to do it. So that makes it all right. And, um, and that, that part of scripture is only there to show us, um, our, our own idolatry, our own sickness and how we will scapegoat God, uh, to do horrible things. Um, and yet all along though, you know, the prophets keep saying, and I'll, I'll quote Isaiah here. He says, if you remove the yoke from your midst, the pointing of finger and the speaking of wickedness, and if you give yourself to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light will rise in darkness and your gloom will become like midday and the Lord will continually guide you and satisfy your desire, even in scorched places. Uh And I think that says it all, um, that how many times do we like to point the finger and speak wickedness, thinking while we're doing it, we're doing God's, we're doing will. God's will because yep. I'm the Christian or I'm the, the, the Israelites. And so therefore I'm God's warrior and I will tear you down. And, and it's just the opposite. Just the opposite. You know, as we tie this podcast up, Steve, and I think I I have to get ready for a couple of other appointments, but maybe I could mention a couple of uh, books that would help people, those at least who want to supplement their their own personal conversion to to the God of deification and the Most Holy Trinity. Um, with this notion of, of, you know, the merciful Jesus um, that might be helpful for them. You know, the one that I, you know, uh, the one by Rene Girard, though he's got many, many books and his, his whole corpus is quite sophisticated and draws on literature as well as anthropology. But I think the best introduction to his thinking which is where so many of us uh, have seen, have, have, have had a deeper light on the gospel shed for us, 
his book called uh, called called I Saw Satan Fall Like Lightning is a great introduction there, and it has a wonderful introduction by James G. Williams, another Catholic who um, is is one of those who is trying to introduce the Western Catholic world to this deeper. Uh, really more ancient tradition of um, of Christ uh, uh, delivering us from from sacred violence as as all other religions and cultures have understood God. Williams himself, James G. Williams, has a book that will uh, take people through uh, this exegetical paradigm that is necessary to understand the gospel in its deepest light called The Bible, Violence, and the Sacred, James G. Williams, The Bible, Violence, and the Sacred. It's a magnificent um, tour through the scriptures to show how even the passages like an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, how all the violent, the, 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 the passages in the Bible that appear to make the Father of Jesus a violent retributive God um, actually means something quite different in the prophetic tradition that you quoted from there a minute ago in Israel, and then certainly in the New Testament. I highly recommend that book. And then Father Raymond Schwager, Schwager, S-C-H-W-A-G-E-R, he has many books as well, but the one that also treats these difficult passages in the scripture showing how through the prophets, where they say, it's mercy I desire, not sacrifice. Your sacrifices are an abomination to me. Schwager also takes us through the Old Testament and into the New, showing how there is nothing other than mercy in God, and that divine justice is largely a human fabrication projected upon the divine. His book called Must There Be Scapegoats is a wonderful treatment of that as well. And then finally, uh, a book that tries to show how this vision of the gospel is applied to liturgy and our understanding of the Mass as an unbloody sacrifice, which also gets, I mean, we'll have to do a whole session on how the Mass also and the meaning of the Mass has been contorted by a certain um, vengeful atonement theory into a sacrifice that propitiates the anger of God. Uh, But a great book that does that, uh, hands down, is um, Father... um, uh, Daly, Father uh, Robert J. Daly's book called Sacrifice Unveiled. And he's trying to show us there um, from this perspective of a non-atonement-driven vision of the Trinitarian mercy, what the Mass would look like from, uh, uh, from a paradigm in which God is not the author of violence or of justice as we understand it. Sacrifice Unveiled by Father Robert J. Daly. So those are some books, Steve, that have certainly helped deepen my appreciation of, you know, the very fine and basic, I mean, simple, straightforward words of Jesus. You know, forgive not once, but 77 times seven times, which is a metaphor in Scripture for infinity. And why would he ask us to be forgiving infinitely if he himself was not infinite forgiveness? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, um, you know, we could go on and on about that, but 
uh, we really have to pray to the Holy Spirit to open us to a God who does not demand or exercise justice in any sense as we might understand it, nor does he exercise love in any way we might understand it. He is, his love is, you know, it's in his light that we see light. It's, it's not that we have loved him, it's that he has loved us first. And ultimately, Steve, this is the biggest paradigm shift and biggest conversion that I think any of us need to make. We have to begin to realize that Christianity is not something we do towards God. It's something that God does and is doing that moves towards us and assimilates it, assimilates us into himself. We, we are the recipients. We are not the actors here. We are the recipients. God is always the primary actor. And um, so often we put ourselves in the driver's seat without <laughs> realizing it, realizing we're doing it. And that itself is a great function of our mm-hmm. own blindness and darkness. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm sure our listeners appreciate you sharing those books with us. And um, I, I can speak um, and uh, uh, give a, a good voice to uh, yeah the Rene Girard book on I See Satan Fall Like Lightning. Um, fantastic read so far. And um, if our listeners would like to get a hold of either myself or, uh, or you, Father Phil, they can contact us at Encounter the Trinity at gmail.com. That's our email address. And then we can also be found on Facebook. Just look up encounter the Trinity or encountering the Trinity on Facebook and you will find our Facebook page. And then on Twitter, um, if you'd like to ask us a question or get a hold of us, you can also find us on Twitter at most Holy Trinity. So I guess with that, Father Phil, do you mind uh, closing us with a uh, closing yeah. us out with prayer today. As always, let's uh, do the great uh, hymn of praise of the Trinity, the doxology, or what we know in the West as the Glory Be. Glory be, be to the Father and, and to the, to the Son, Son and to the to Holy the Spirit, Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, is now and, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. <laughs>